You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today, we have a guest speaker. Uh, well, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I want to introduce our special guest preacher today. Uh, one of the highlights of the year for me is I try to go to as much Rise Up Week as I can. It's honestly one of my favorite events, maybe favorite event in the whole church calendar. Yeah. Yep. And because of you guys. And so uh, I want to introduce to you uh, Eric, uh, who preached for the whole weekend uh, and taught the kids and is going to speak to us now. Uh, Our pastoral team, we kind of met Eric in about 2020, something like that. And uh, he's a part of a church, uh, Gray City Church in Northeast Philadelphia. And uh, they're one of the churches along with us, our church, our elders, their elders that have tried to, uh, well not tried, have uh, formed a new fledgling uh, sort of denomination called uh, Trinity Fellowship Churches. So we're connected uh, in a meaningful way with, uh, with his church. And uh, so we've gotten to know him. And then uh, this weekend really gotten to know him as uh, had the privilege of hosting him and chatting a lot. And also uh, Eric brought his daughter here, Chloe, in the front row. She's a freshman at Spelman in Atlanta. So she flew in from Atlanta. He flew in from Philly. They met and hung out for the weekend. So that's pretty cool. Welcome, Chloe, as well this morning. So Eric and his church, he serves on the preaching team there. But uh, so he's kind of a bivocational guy because his uh, kind of uh, our version of Aaron Paul, bivocational guy, he uh, which is an honor, right? That's a, yeah. Uh, he, uh, in his daytime job, most of his work life is he's in IT. He's, uh, uh, he does IT research, research IT stuff. He does that with Yale University and some other places. So let's hear it for a guy in IT who gets up and preaches God's word. Can we hear that? All you IT people. Yeah. Nine out of 10 people in Frisco work in IT. I don't know what it is. They just tell me I'm in IT. Okay. Well, I have no idea what that means. Uh, at any rate, so that's what he does. And um, Eric, I just wanted to say thank you uh, for being with us this weekend. Thank you for bringing God's word to the next generation, our young people that we love so dearly. And uh, thank you for just serving. You exuded the love of God to all of us uh, throughout the weekend. And I was thinking about how to describe Eric, having spent a number of hours with him and known him for a few years. I and, um, and, and the word I thought about his ministry and his life is you bring a joyful sobriety. And by that, I mean sober. You told the kids it is serious business to serve Jesus. It, it counts. It is, it is heaven and hell. It is eternity in the balance. It matters. And yet you brought the sober message of the truth of Scripture with joy and grace and a smile on your face. And uh, so there's just a joy about you, the, the gospel rooted in your heart. Uh, and that is a perfect blend of fear of the Lord and joy of the Lord together. So thank you for that. And can we welcome Eric as he brings God's word. Uh, Good morning. So I'll give you one testimony. Before we get into it, uh, I got in Thursday. This is the first time I've seen Bethany Paul sit down. Um, Now that is a testimony. If there's anybody that has permission to fall asleep while I'm preaching, it's her. Um, Because I know she's tired. Nobody else has that permission, but we'll give her that grace. Um, So she zonks. Don't even touch her. Just just leave her alone. Um, Because there were some folks that really labored. Um, it, it's amazing when you see an event like this, 
You can't do that with just one strong leader. You need a lot of hands to make light work. Um, and it was amazing just to interact with all of you, your children. Um, we had some great conversations. I talked to Craig, the bishop, a whole lot. Um, we, we enjoyed that. Now I get to start calling him bishop. Uh, but you all have been so gracious to me, and I've really enjoyed it. We should do, like, a, a student exchange. Aaron can come up to Philly, and I come down here, and we'll switch. I'll make cheesesteaks. He can make brisket for them. And then, because um, the bivocational guys, we're interchangeable. We don't matter that much. That's why we're not on payroll, you know. <laughs> it's like you got a bivocational guy, you can do anything. He's got a job. So, you know, it's all right. That being said, we're going we're gonna to go to the text, but uh, I just want to greet you. We will be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 today. Um, think of me as your brother from Grace City Church of the Northeast. Uh, my family in Philadelphia, who's probably watching, I think, we greet you. Uh, we love you in the Lord. Um, and on behalf of the Philadelphia Eagles, um, in the spirit of R.C. Sproul, what is wrong with you people? Uh, <laughs> And by you people, I mean sports-watching people. Um, just want to clear that up. <laughs> Some people didn't get that. It's okay. <laughs> you get it on the way home. Uh, and I'm not even an Eagles fan. I just wanted to bother you. So there we go. <laughs> and you fell for it. So now you really want to confess sin before you take communion. That being said, would you meet me in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, verse 3? Let me grab this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we'll read from verse 3 all the way to verse 12. Here's how it reads. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Our Father and our God, Lord, would you hollow this moment out and use it for your spirit's work? I pray, Lord, that you would reveal Christ in a powerful way to every person, every age, no matter where we are in life. Our faith and trust is in you alone, Lord. We confess that you are king, you are God, and you are good. So I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, Lord. You're my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. 
I was telling the church earlier today, um, recently I, I kind of consider myself having become a gamer of sorts. Um, there's my PC games. Anybody here play games? Fortnite, Minecraft, Resident Evil. Okay, I won't talk about that because too many saved people, but Diablo 4, uh, a couple games I really like, but my favorite game is chess. Um, and I play a game of chess, thank you. I play just about every day. My father is an avid chess player. My two brothers play chess. I play chess. I have chess books. I enjoy the game. It's relaxing for me. It's a strategy game. It exercises my mind. It escapes from my work. Um, but I'm a certain type of chess player. I'm the kind of chess player where I don't like to sacrifice pieces. I don't want to lose my queen or my bishop. I don't want to lose my rook or my knight. And so I try to keep everything as much as I can. So that's the type of chess player I am. Do you know the word for a chess player who doesn't want to lose any pieces? A loser. That's, that's what I am. This guy. This guy. Two thumbs. This guy. Um, I play chess and I try to strategize and I know what I should do, but I don't want to do it because if I lose the knight or I lose the bishop, I might be unstable and I think the game is just going to go bad. And it does go bad when I'm refusing to sacrifice. So I, I struggle and, and I know the stuff that I should do, but I don't do because my nature, I'm just one of those people who is just, I'm just going to be a, a little timid because I don't want to lose. And, and I love this game of strategy, and I'm trying to get better at it, but just I am not that player. Um, I play a losing game. Uh, what do you call a Christian who is in the game but refuses to sacrifice in advance? Now, we might not call him a loser, but there's something wrong when Jesus adopts you, loves you, brings you into his kingdom, and sends you out into the world to, to make a difference for him, and yet you're kind of passive. You kind of say, I'm waiting for God to lead me or guide me, or, or you know, we have all kinds of sanctified ways of procrastinating. Um, you know, I'm waiting for God to move in my heart. I'm waiting for the pastor to tell me, or, you know, I'm, I'm just waiting for the wind to blow, and it's just not going to happen. Um, but there is an issue when we are not intentional in our faith. Because we have an intentional God who loves us as an action word, who sacrificed himself, a God who sent his son uh, to be man on earth, 100% God, 100% man, to live a perfect life in our place, to die a death we deserve, and he deserves people who are passionate about him because of that love. And I told the church earlier today, in case you didn't know, by way of information, I am black, right? And so... I'm black, and I was in a black church before, so when I preach, I want to look at you, and I want to have some energy and some emotion. I know some of you are never going to amen because you think you're not in a Baptist church, and that's okay, even though you really are. But I want to get you to talk back and look at me, and so you can say amen. Some of you are just going to nod. You MacArthur's are going to nod, and some of you Francis Chan's are going to cry. And so I want to have all of that together, so just give me that energy, okay? I won't judge you if you don't judge me, all right? And, and, so, and so as we get into the text, because what we're, what we're looking at here is not something that's a one-time thing. We're not looking at something that God just wanted to do in Thessalonica. What we're looking at is a faith that works and a love that labors, and God wants that for every Christian. Whether you are 16 or 60, God has something specific in mind for you and I to do. Rephrase, God has something specific he wants to do through us. 
And so we were, we were caught up at it in 2 Thessalonians 1. Um, Paul, uh, you guys will probably learn this as you're reading through and preaching through Acts right now. Paul is going to go on his second missionary journey. Um, he, along with Sylvanus, are going to come to a place called Thessalonica. They're going to cause a lot of trouble, and then they're going to plant a church. And there's going to be a lot of believers there that are going to come to faith in the midst of all this trouble that has been stirred up. Now, Paul is going to get out, and he's going to leave on, and he's going to send Timothy. But these believers are going to be called by God and by Paul to stay and be faithful in a hard place. And they're going to suffer. And Paul, as we're going to see, is like a father to them. Uh, and I don't know the terminology used in churches down here, but we used to talk about spiritual fathers and spiritual children. And, and Paul, I think, is the model of the spiritual father. He's not just the apostle, but he's the one who loves the people that he's brought to Christ. He cares for the church that he has planted. And so as we get into the text in verse 3, he is letting everyone know that he is thankful for what God is doing in them, and yet he's not calling them to leave the trouble. He's calling them to flourish in the trouble. Go with me to verse 3. He, he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. That's the model that I want to unpack for all of us. So here's the big idea that I have for you today. Uh, since we have God's promise of grace and future glory, we must be a people of increasing faith and laboring love. I'll say that again, because of Christ, since we have God's promise of grace and future glory, we must be a people of increasing faith and laboring love. Uh, Paul getting into the text is, is thankful and he's celebratory of this church that has been growing. Um, if you're familiar with 1 Thessalonians, the first letter he wrote, he said in the beginning of that letter, beginning in verse 2, I'll read, he said, we thank we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is seeing that their faith is needing to thrive despite of the trials. He, as a father, he's giving them an idea of what you should expect. Uh, as a father, I want my, my children to see and hear me model what they should expect in life and how they should move in certain circumstances. There's certain people they shouldn't be around. There's certain things they shouldn't do. But for the life of the believer, when trouble comes, it is not a time to hide or be quiet or to sit on our testimony. And so he, he says to them, Throughout this, both letters, there is this melodic theme of faith, love, and hope that just permeates through the book. And, and I wish, parenthetically, that for Christians we could read um, apocalyptic literature and not go crazy and creepy Christian on it. That we could read about the coming of Christ, we could read about the imminence of his return, and it could give us encouragement and not more bumper stickers. If I have one more person tell me why I shouldn't drink a can of Monster because it says 666 in Hebrew, I'll lose my mind. <laughs> this is true story. Um, um, but, but God gives us these scriptures to encourage us because we're all called to trouble in this world. Because if you love the Lord and you serve the Lord, the world is not your friend. 
We've spent the last couple of days preaching and loving on young people, and, and, and I want to encourage all of you, and, and I have a couple of things that I'll say in a few minutes, but understand, if you are friends of Jesus, you are an enemy to this world. And so even though we want to affirm you and encourage you and celebrate all that God has done through Pastor Rob's vision and all the people who helped and worked out, when you leave here, you are under attack. Your identity in Jesus is under attack. Your identity as a male or a female is under attack. Your, your adherence to this old book they call a Bible is under attack. And your call is to thrive under the attack and the warfare. And so Paul uses two specific words as he's describing faith and love in verse 3 of 2 Thessalonians. First he says in verse 3, because your faith is greatly enlarged, Paul takes the verb oxano and he puts a hooper ahead of it. In other words, he says, your, your faith has hyper grown. It, it has exceedingly grown beyond measure or standard. So their faith that is rooted in the hope of the gospel, the objective reality of what Jesus has done and who he is, that faith has increased beyond the regular expect, expectations and standards. And he immediately follows that in verse 3, and he says, the love of each one of you toward one another grows, New American Standard says, ever greater. That's a different Greek verb. That means it abounds in number, in the quantity. Um, in, in other words, there is a quality of faith that increases as we learn God's promises, as we trust Jesus, as we have our identity in him. But there is a quantity or a strength or a tonnage, if you know about powerlifting, where you are doing and exerting more and more effort and force at loving people who maybe even don't even want to be loved or are hard to love. And so, in other words, if I'm a biblical Christian, I'm called to just have more than faith. Because for many of us, faith is an intellectual thing and not a love thing. And if you're on the faith side of the camp, you can normally criticize people on the love side of the camp. And the people on the love side, are like the people at the faith side are so mean. But that's a, a misconstruing of all the different sides because in the Christian life, in the gospel, faith and love are train tracks you have to ride on. And if you lose either one, you derail the whole train. And, and I'll encourage you, I have lots of books, all right? So I don't know how strong my faith is, but I know how strong my library is, okay? I have enough books to answer questions. I have commentaries. I, I, have, I have the cheap logos. I have all that stuff. But that doesn't mean that I'm active in my faith and loving people the way I should. And so we should never think just because I've listened to a lot of sermons and I've read a lot of books and I have a lot of memory verses, which is good and necessary, it doesn't mean I'm operating in faith until I'm loving people. Because what Paul is talking about in the beginning of verse 3 is actually what it looks like to love God. To have faith in God's promises and trust him is loving God. Let me quote for you. John chapter 14. These are the words of Jesus. John chapter 14 verse 15. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And so in our faith, when we are trusting God and Christ is precious to us, he's the most valuable person in our life, then what happens there is we are, we are loving him because we are demonstrating his sufficiency, his goodness, and his beauty when all the world is attacking us. 
That's where God is made to look beautiful. It's the hard places. And out of that grows and blossoms a love for other people horizontally. In other words, to be born again is to have this deadness inside of you removed and to have a new heart that now because I'm in Christ, I can love people without expecting anything back. This is how a church could go through this. And he didn't say, notice he didn't say some of the members. He didn't say your elders are really good. He didn't say you have great deacons. He, he said the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. They had a culture of love and an intellectual faith. And I submit that's something we need to strive for and we need to work for. We need the good faith and the good doctrine and the practical love. Somebody say amen. There you go. I wasn't even leaving that to chance. Uh, last week, there, there was a quote from Paul Washer online. It kind of went viral. Here's what Paul Washer said. He said, all of your Reformed theology and good doctrine will be annulled if you do not outlove those who oppose you. The test of a Christian's love is not how you treat people who treat you well. It's how you are with the outsiders. It's how you are with the new person that's unstable and immature. It's how you deal with the children. It's how you deal with the people that aren't like you but are in church. That's the test of genuine faith that, that is rising into a love for God and a love for people. Um, I'll illustrate a certain way of how I had to learn what real genuine faith was. Um, I shared this story Years ago in my ministry, I was a young youth pastor, um, and I found myself in a season of not just dryness, but suffering, and, 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 and I was going through some really bad things, and as I think about it, what I realize is I was born to a mother who was 16 years old, and as I look back, I never felt the approval of my mom. I never felt the love of my mom. She was like a sister and not a mom, and I was such a people pleaser in ministry that when I didn't get the affirmation, when I felt the rejection, when I went through these different emotions, it messed me up. And I would come in on Sunday or whenever I was coming in, and I would just go through the motions on autopilot. I would pray and praise, and I would do the things. I would put the mask on, and I would suit up and go to my car and take it off and cry. And I would have my little playlist that I would go through, and I would come back in and go through the motions, and it was wasting away at me. I was losing weight. I was just, I was not loving people, but I was doing enough to not be judged by people. You know how it is. You don't want to do enough to get excommunicated, but you don't want to be that friendly either. You don't want to be friends that much. You don't want people asking about you, so you know what you do? Here's what you do, because I've done it. You be the one that talks all the time so nobody gets a chance to ask you anything. You be the one that's constantly serving and doing so nobody gets in your business. And so you know what God does lovingly sometimes? He puts his finger on the pain so it has to come out. And here I was on a, on a couch in the office of a chaplain just bleeding out everything that's going on. And I told him I bought all the books. I was reading about spiritual warfare. I was listening to every, they didn't even have to be reformed. If they were on TBN and they were talking about suffering, I was listening to it. I kid you not, I had the Derek Prince tapes, I'm listening to Tony Evans, I'm, getting, I'm going through all this stuff. I, it might have been Juanita Bynum, I don't know, don't judge me. I, I really wanted help because in my mind, even though it didn't sound right, I was still saying, I'm a minister. This kind of stuff doesn't happen to me. It's not supposed to happen. I serve God, I love God. How is it that my life is falling apart? And, and this brother says to me one morning, so I'm telling him about what's going on. He asked me a question. He said, if tomorrow morning you knew 
that Jesus Christ was going to do whatever is the best case scenario for you. If you knew without a shadow of a doubt he was going to do it tomorrow, what would you do tonight? And I was like, well, I wouldn't read my books. I would go rent a movie and I would go eat a pizza. And he said, brother, if you're going to rest in Christ, you need to go have the pizza. That's the only thing you could do by faith right now because everything else is unbelief. Everything else is anxiety. And I think one of the problems for many of us when we've been in church long enough is we don't know how to eat pizza. We don't know how to rest. We don't know how to trust God in such a way where I don't have to buy another book. I don't have to quote another verse. And yes, learn scripture. Don't send me an email. If you're upset, yeah, send me an email. Uh, Rob.trembella at idontcare.com. Um, send me your complaints, please. I'll listen to it tomorrow. Um, but I didn't need another verse. I needed to act on the verses I already knew. Most of us don't need another sermon. We need more obedience of faith to what we already know of God. And so we need to establish rhythms where we rest because that is abiding in Christ where I'm meditating on his word and his goodness. And so for many of us today, we need to ask, I need to ask you, are you resting in Jesus in a way where he is your treasure? Are you resting in a way that, that it's not so burdensome what you're dealing with in life so that you can love other people who may be going through also? Somebody once told me, you know how you can tell somebody who's truly humble is how they make other people feel. You know that you are really a body in Christ when you can, you can put aside your own self and put someone ahead of you and listen and care. That's maturity. And so if you're here today, I, I encourage you. Ask yourself, do I abide in faith? Am I, am I truly in Christ? And if I am, do people see that in me or do they see busyness or do they see isolation? Do they see a person that's connected to people and not connected to Christ? Or do they see someone that is with Jesus so much that it just oozes off of me to other people? You're never going to get it perfect all the time. You're not going to get it right all the time. But together, we want to breed and cultivate in an environment that just smells of Jesus to the community outside. Because that's the love this world is looking for. With God, love is always in action. It's not just a feeling. We want to think about how does that faith grow. Last night, uh, I was sharing with some people all these teens are in here in the middle last night, and they've got hands up, and they're, they're praising God, and they're worshiping, and it is like the most beautiful thing to see people that God is using to worship him and liberating them from sin, that they would love Jesus. And the prayer that I have is that as a church, we make sure we keep a culture of grace, that they matriculate in the faith, and we don't treat them like Christian Jr., where we say, you come in, and here's our church, and here's how you need to act and behave in our church. Uh, I'm like many of you. I grew up in a church where I, I, we wore robes and we wore ties and kids couldn't wear hats and we would have told them to take their hats off. You can't chew gum. And we chase them all out of the church because we create cultures based on preference rather on grace. And can I just exhort you and, and, and warn you that, that the, the youth who come to Christ are so delicate. How you treat them is training them on how to treat other people. And so what we want to do, first of all, we want to encourage and, and, and stir up and thank God for the faith that he's birthing in our young people. Well, you're young people, but I'm claiming them. Uh, um, 
And so for every one of you who've been here over the weekend, I want to encourage you, but I want to charge you to take your faith seriously. Don't let anyone look down on you because of your age. Because you are in Christ, you're a brother and a sister, not a cousin, not a niece, not a little one, not the babe. You are in Christ. And the church is yours to lead someday in some way. Own that Jesus is my God and, and I'm part of his church. And let nothing else identify you more than that. Because that is the challenge of faith. Every one of us has some other identity that's vying to go along with Christian, whether it's our, our race, whether it's our politics. We're, we're fighting that struggle to make sure we are more Christian than we are something else. We need help with that. And God gives us that. And so when, what Paul is saying is that in the worst adversity, the faith of the Thessalonians was growing and it was budding into love. And then he says in verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith. You could translate that saying steadfastness in faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions you are enduring. But if we would, we would see that, we, we, what we see breaking down is that the evidence of love for God is the obedience of faith, but then it leads to an expression of love towards other people. They go hand in hand. Those are the railroad tracks. But next, Paul wants to lead them to be encouraged in their acting in love and in faith. Go to verse 5. Paul says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Well, the this at the beginning of verse 5 refers to what he just said in verse 4. The fact that they are suffering in steadfast faith and holding on to Christ, it is evidence that God is at work. But if he says that, what does he mean by judgment? Well, if we look at judgment in the, in the context of verses 5 through 10, there's two things we learn about judgment. God administers judgment in two ways. Number one, there is purifying judgment meant for the Christian. In other words, it's not saying he judges you and casts you off. No, Jesus dealt with all of God's wrath. He's not mad at you, but he wants to sanctify you because when God, the Spirit, looks at you, he doesn't see enough Jesus. He sees too much of you, and he wants to get that out. He's trying to make us all look like Christ, and he allows and ordains suffering and trials and adversity to make us look like Jesus. But then secondly, there is a punitive judgment that God is superintending in these verses. If you go on to verse 6, it says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, God has a promise in store for every person in this room. It is either that right now he allows you to go through your hard things so that you have an eternity with him of good or you have your good things now and eventually you will die and you will suffer judgment. And why would I bring this up in a sermon on love? Because we can't be grounded in love if we don't have a God who is going to reward us and keep us and promises a future for us. I need to know that there is a God of judgment and justice so that everything I do I know is significant to God. I need to know that, yes, I will answer to God for certain things, but I'll be rewarded for other things. As soon as you lose Jesus and his judgment, you lose the idea of love. 
And this world is trying to re, uh, redefine what love is. And it's trying to tell you what faith is. Is this private thing that you nourish on Sunday and you put aside during the week. And love is tolerance. And none of that is biblical. And so we are called to remember that even though the world is hostile to us, God is coming. When? I don't know. This morning, next week. But he's coming and it's certain. But there's a warning to that. There is a warning that if we are not built on the gospel, if you do not know Jesus as Savior, whether you go to church or not, it means that you will be judged. It means that right now you know God as merciful, but you will know him as the tormentor who locks you away to be punished forever. In other words, when Paul says in verse 8, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, to obey the gospel means that Jesus is at the center and you built all your life around Christ and, and his precepts and the affection for him such that you're taking territory in your heart and in your life and you're constantly subjecting it to Jesus. To not obey the gospel is entirely possible in church. You can come in and act one way and have a whole nother life on your phone, on your social media, and you can be an entirely different person on Monday morning and go through the motions your whole life and go to hell right after you die. There are tons of people who have played church and been judged in fire. And so the most loving thing I can think to do is to encourage you to repent and be saved. It is to turn to Jesus Christ in faith and say, Lord, I've made a mess of myself and I know that I can't clean it up and I know I deserve judgment. Save me. Don't wait till the end of service. Don't wait to pray. Now ask him to save you. Now ask him to move in and saturate your soul with living waters and to make you his own and to adopt you in his family. I think too often we play with God's wrath because so many people have beat people up with it that we sanitize ourselves sometimes in how we preach and how we share our faith. But if we really believe that Jesus is coming back, we can't play games with the gospel. It means that we do hard things like sending teams out to plant churches in, in rough times and hard ways. I said it, I don't know if Rob heard earlier today, I said it's a good thing that he's bald now. Because if he wasn't, he's going to lose his hair. <laughs> Planting churches is hard and lonely. I'm not to say it's, it's worse or easier than being a pastor, but you've got to preach, you've got to lead, you've got to be a business administrator, you've got to be a marketer, an advertiser, you've got to do all this stuff for people who are going to come and listen and never come back after one Sunday. You got to have services where people only give you 56 cents for a service. That was my first service I preached as a church planner, um, which is why I stayed bivocational. Um, <laughs> I, I can't pay for Spellman being a preacher. And yet, because Jesus is worth it, he'll go. Because Jesus is worth it, he'll leave comfort, he'll leave familiarity. To leave what is comfortable to go out into the unknown and say, because Jesus is where I'm going to make much of him in the unknown. And we'll celebrate it. Every one of us is called to do the same thing in our own way. Because of his love. And so when Paul says in verse 5, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, what he's saying is God is making you fit for the kingdom. He's growing your faith and giving you opportunity to celebrate Jesus. We want to do it together. We've got to do it in our own life, individually, publicly. But it takes believing in a Jesus who's more than just the shampoo model Jesus. I shared that this morning. I said, I'm from West Philly. I don't know if any of y'all from the Northeast, but in my neighborhood when I was a kid in the 80s, every household had what I called the Black Trinity. 
um, there was the shampoo model Jesus. That photo was first. There was JFK and there was Martin Luther King. And everybody in my neighborhood had all three photos. And it might be in different order, but that was like the Negro Trinity, okay? You go in someone's house, and the house might be dirty, it might be roaches, but they're going to clean those photos. Um, and so, yeah, the Jesus who looked like he's going to cry, and, and his hair is really nice and permed. And, and you have JFK, and, and you have Martin Luther King with the praying hands, and that's just what we had. And so to me, all three of them were just powerless. But Jesus was really weird and, and weak because Jesus, it was shampoo model, but that's not Jesus. I guarantee you right now, how you lived all this week is a reflection of what you think of Jesus Christ. Whether you think he's strong, whether he's weak, whether he's with you or for you or whether he's against you, but we need to get our, our image of Jesus right. Um, there is a ministry run by a woman named Joni Erickson Tata. Many, many of you have heard of her. Um, she was injured in a swimming accident at 17 years old, and she was paralyzed from the shoulders down. Now, she's in her 70s now, but she has devoted her life to ministering to people who are suffering, who are disabled, people who need God's grace and who suffer like her because she is confined to a wheelchair. She'll never walk. She'll never be able to do for herself the things that we take for granted every day. But in, she wrote a book about it, and there's an excerpt for her book that I think gives us a good picture of Jesus. I just want to read this quote to you really quick. Here's what Joni Erickson Tata says. She said, here at our ministry, we refuse to present a picture of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, a portrait that tugs at your sentiments or pulls at your heartstrings. That's because we deal with so many people who suffer when you're hurting hard. You're neither helped nor inspired by a syrupy picture of the Lord, like those sugary sentimental images many of us grew up with. When your heart is being wrung out like a sponge, when you feel like Morton salt is being poured into your wounded soul, you don't want a thin, pale, emotional Jesus who relates only to lambs, birds, and babies. You want a warrior Jesus. You want a battlefield Jesus. You want his rigorous and robust gospel to command your sensibilities to stand at attention. You want the mighty, strong arm and unshakable grip of God. See, it's not about how well you have a grasp of God. It's you comprehending that this big God has a grip on you. And no trouble and no suffering and not even death itself can separate you from the love of God. You build your hope on this, that he's got you. Somebody needs to feel that today because you may be feeling isolated from the church. You may be feeling like, I don't even know why I feel the way I feel. And I'm struggling with emotions and I'm struggling with depression. And you need to understand that there is a reason because God got you. And if you could just see all the things that his love has filtered out and not let come your way, you'd be praising him now. See, one, one thing is promised, two things for sure. Um, God will give you more than you can handle. Um, I don't know who starts spreading that around. He will give you more than you can handle. But he gives you what is necessary to build you up. See, your trials aren't like my trials. My struggles aren't your struggles, but we all got them. And the size of our Jesus determines the testimony when we come out of that. And so the warning, don't reject this Jesus. Don't be enemies with a God like this, a God who's this big and strong and mighty. Rather, look at the mercy he extends to you and ask him, Lord, make me yours. Obey that gospel. And so Paul goes on from verses 5 through 10, and he's just unpacking what Jesus is going to do and how he promises justice for us. And I'll say parenthetically, if you look at this whole chapter in the Greek, this is just three verses. 
in reality. Verses 1 and 2 are one sentence in the Greek. Verses 5 through 10 is literally one sentence. It's like, Paul, can you put a period or a comma? Um, but he wasn't English, so. And then verses 11 and 12 are an entirely separate sentence. So it's three sentences, and this is Paul's thought. He wants to encourage us and let us know, put our hope in the reward that is to come with Christ, the justice that he's going to bring. But then finally, he moves from the encouragement to exhorting that he's going to pray for an expansion of faith. He's going to pray that there would be an expansion of the kingdom through his people, through God's people. Look at verse 11. It says, to this end, we always pray. So Paul is consistently praying for his people. So, so leaders, uh, pastors, fathers, look at what Paul and how Paul is praying. He said, we always pray that our God may make you worthy of his calling. So that first part, he's saying, I pray that God makes you fit for the calling that you have, that he makes you fit for the kingdom that is to come. But how? So when you see and, you could literally change it to how. The how is, may he fulfill every resolve for good. Pause there before we go. So in other words, faith should lead us to intentionally make resolutions to do good. We shouldn't be passive. We shouldn't procrastinate. There are some things we need to resolve to do. Maybe this is the year you resolve to fix your marriage. Maybe this is the year you resolve to go to a counselor. Maybe it's the year you, you, you start working on memorizing scripture. Maybe you start coming to church on time. But God wants you to be intentional when you understand faith. So how does it work? First, we make the resolve, but then on the other side of it, in verse 11, every good work of faith by his power is the other side. You start as the resolve, and when you finish it, it is the work of faith. How do we do it? I trust God at his promises. I make the resolve, and I trust the promise, and I walk it out. Here's a real simple illustration. I made a resolve to marry a woman. Here's the ring. Now I got to live it out. And I got to trust God to help me not mess it up. She's at home going too late. <laughs> I just speak it for her. And yet I got to work on that every week, every day, and abide in him. Why? Because I'm a jerk at heart. And I don't deserve the love that I get. And so I got to keep working through that. And so what God is saying is make the resolves. You understand that faith is working in you when you want to make much of Jesus. Some of you, you don't know what to make a resolve, but you have so much pain over a certain thing and it just bothers you. And maybe that's where God is showing you your purpose. For me, it was wanting to see strong marriages because I never saw it in my family. I had a really messed up home life coming up. And it was like, I want to see people who grow up to be biblical men and women who built families. What's your pain today? What are you doing with it? Maybe you do need to take a counseling class and counsel some people. Maybe there's a ministry idea in you that you just never talked to anybody about that would be a blessing to this church. Talk to someone. Maybe you want to be a church planner and you want to come to Philadelphia and talk to me after service instead of going with Rob. But you can, we can talk about that. And so the encouragement here is resolve today. Make your decision then manage your decision. Follow Jesus, but be clear and specific on what are you going to do. And then trust God to show up. And he may make you go a whole other way. That's fine. That's called providence. You will enjoy it and you will love it. I'll close on this. Last night we had a talk about um, the marriage of Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. And Bishop Curry from the Episcopal Church, who was the officiant over the wedding, 
And Bishop Curry told this story about how he grew up in a racially segregated 1960s America. And in Ohio, one Sunday, his father decided to go to an Episcopal church. And they go in, and it was weird because the church was integrated. There was white and black people sitting together. And if you know the history of the church during that time, black people didn't typically sit with white people. They would sit in the back or in the balcony. As a matter of fact, in Philadelphia, it became so bad that there was a man named Richard Allen that started a whole denomination so that black people could actually preach and sit in the front. And yet, this man takes his family to this church, white and black, and they serve communion, and he sees white and black drinking from the same chalice, and they're passing around, and white lips are touching the same glass as black lips in a society where you couldn't even use the same water fountain, let alone drink from a cup together. And Bishop Curry says his father said, whatever gospel a church like that believes, I want that. And he joins the church. And the work of the church today is to strive and give everything by faith and love to sip from the same chalice together. Now, y'all are already integrated because I just see chocolate and vanilla everywhere, so it's not really broken up. So we have to figure out in our time, what does that look like? It may not be an issue of segregation. It may be an issue that some of us form cliques, and we like to be around the people who are like us. We, we leave the emotional people over there, and we have the intellectuals over here, or we have, you know, we have, I've seen in some of my church, like, we have the Africans together, and we have the blacks together, and then we have, like, the cool urban whites with us. And, is this, and again, you get people that are, you're comfortable with, yes, but if you love Jesus, you just want to know the people that Jesus loves. In what way? Will we as the church, will you as the church sip from the same chalice with someone? Because God is lifted up and glorified, not in being colorblind. That never helped anybody because God made this tapestry of people to look different and to be different. But how do we come together in unity in a way where when people come in, they go, there's something weird about that place and I love it. It's going to be different for you young people because you're going to be separated along different lines. And we live in a global economy where everyone is so different and so connected. In a given day at my work, I talk to people who are in India, um, depending on what time of day it is. I talk to people who are in the Midwest. I talk to people who are in the South. This is the world now. How do we sip from the same chalice? Don't ignore this because this is your call from God. God bless you. Let me pray for you. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.